Good afternoon and good evening, everybody. Mike Madrid here. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Mike Drop. We're already on episode 16. I can't believe this discussion has been going on as regularly as it has been and how deep we are into this election cycle. Going to be talking today about a great topic, which is Texas. Called it Don't Mess With Texas, but there's a lot of information I want to come out. Some ad buys. Um, some really interesting things happening in the Rio Grande Valley. Beto's making some moves, making some significant financial shifts. Abbott doubling down on some of his investments. New Texas Tribune poll out today. We're going to talk about all of it, but first I want to uh, cover a couple of housekeeping items. Those housekeeping items, um, first is you will recognize or at least notice that up on stage there's uh, another mic Madrid, another imposter, Mike Madrid, the moderator. We're going to be using this technique to kind of limit um, and um, allow people to access the stage using a moderator, as well as blocking some of the stuff that's popping up in uh, the chat room sometimes. Mainly because, unfortunately, as we get closer to the election cycle, um, we're going to get a lot more trolls. We're going to get a lot more people trying to be disruptive. I think you guys have seen some of the shows where some people are kind of coming in and sort of attacking. The great news is Colin has done a phenomenal job, was actually alerting us to those problems mid-show. This is a really remarkable app. The Colin app it has allowed us to be as engaging as we possibly can and start answering as many questions as we can live and in real time. It allows me to kind of edit and publish the show really quickly after we get the show done. Uh, we've been running long. Uh, we've done a couple two and a half hour episodes and I've tried to make the commitment to go as long as I can, as long as my voice holds out and as long as questions keep coming and as long as you all are sticking around and as long as you all are interested in what it is that we are talking about. And again, I, I think as we get closer to the election, as, as, as the midterms tighten up, we'll probably start adding more than one a week. I'm going to be doing a lot of traveling in the course of the next um, 55, 60 days or so, probably beyond that. A lot of uh, visits all over the country. Um, I'm going to be doing as much as I can to alert you guys from where you're at. Because candidly, it'd be great to, to meet up with some of the folks that have been engaged in the, not just the show, but about but watching some of the work that I've been involved with over the course of the couple, a couple of years. Um, I really appreciate the interaction of everybody. I've made a really strong commitment from a career perspective to be as engaging as I possibly can. It has gotten me into a little bit of trouble. That's why we've got a moderator working with us today. Um, because again, I, I think I opened myself up to a lot of, of, of unnecessary attacks with people trying to simply be disruptive. And what we're going to try to do is limit that. But uh, the part of this experiment for me Part of what I get joy out of is not just being this remote talking head. It's actually helping people feel a little bit more comforted, a little bit more like they've got some insight and understanding into what is happening and feel like the political process is a lot less chaotic than it otherwise is. And don't get me wrong. Campaigns are chaotic. It's part of the part of that drug that we like as political professionals is there's nothing like campaigns and we chase them our entire career because the highs are really high. The lows are really low. There's a ton of unknowns. There's very few things that you can control. There's a lot of variables outside of your control and it's important to find 
those guardrails. It's important to find statistical fact-based evidence. For me, it's those numbers that I rely on to say, hey, this is what's happening. The rest of the stuff happening around us is noise and continue to push through with uh, your campaign plan, your, your campaign strategy. It's very difficult sometimes to stick to a campaign plan when you know before Labor Day that you've spent a year, year and a half figuring out what it is that you should be doing and executing your plan. And then after Labor Day, when your opposition starts dropping you know, campaign ads and, and the rumor mill starts going and the media starts focusing and, and voters start asking questions, that crazy time, that chaos is when you really, really, really need to dig deep, take a deep breath and be sober and clear minded about every step that you take through the course of a campaign because every decision starts to matter. Every decision starts to take on an exponential value from here on out after Labor Day. The decisions that you're making this week are far more important than they were last week, but they're not as important as next week. And then the next phase of this, guys, the next crazy phase of the campaign is the realization that the, the, the most important you have on a campaign is time. And every minute matters because as we get closer, you can have all the money in the world left on hand. You can have all the issues matrix breaking your direction. You can have the best campaign staff, the best campaign team, the best polling results. But if you don't have the capacity and the time to execute it, none of that matters. So that's why we love campaigns. That's why I've spent my career doing this stuff. It's probably my own attention deficit disorder challenges <laughs> that keep me focused on this. But that's why I do this, okay? Um, I'm already seeing people jumping up on stage. That's a good idea, okay? Jump on now. doesn't mean I'm going to get to you right away. You can be patient and listen to the show. But it's better to have people lined up and in the queue to get those questions answered. Some of those questions may change. Some of the house rules are you get to ask one question while there's people behind you, but you're definitely allowed to jump back into the queue. And as I promised, there have been very, very, very few times where I haven't answered everybody's questions. So I'm going to do my level best to get to that. But the size of the queue also tells me to dial it back a little bit, Madrid, reel it in. Let's start getting to the questions part of this. Your diatribe, your speechifying might be going on a little bit long, but you can also send some notes in the chat by saying, hey, wait, 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 let the guy run a little bit. What he's doing is making a heck of a lot of sense. Now, one other quick favor, and all of you guys have been great. For those of you that are new, uh, new mic droppers, for those of you that are new to the show, it's really helpful and important to understand that we are building a community here. The point here is, is to make this a safe space for everybody where you can ask questions. I don't want anybody feeling uncomfortable about asking a question that may have been asked last week, last month, or last year. That's okay. It's all about getting back to the fundamentals. I learn more, and I've been doing this for 30 years. Sometimes when I'm going through some of these questions, the way that they're asked, so make sure you ask those questions, and let's all be supportive of other people that are asking those questions. As part of that community, and what would be helpful for me in amplifying this, is if you all could take a quick moment right now, and in the upper right-hand corner of your app, that little square with the up arrow allows you to share the fact that this show is happening on Twitter. If you could tweet it out, you can also edit the tweet to, to mention, uh, you put, put a little bit of your own language in there, make it a little bit more personalized. 
but building this community is really, really helpful for the algorithm. It's, it's helpful for the discussion. And as we get closer and closer to the election cycle, the hope of what we're trying to accomplish here is to get more people asking more questions because uh, those of you that have followed me all the way back to the Lincoln Project days, you know that the bigger the community, the better. The network grows. You're going to find people to engage with, some really good questions, following them on social media. And like I said, building out a network of people that are like-minded and are trying to make some positive change in the world is really what this is all about. One final thing, and I'm going to jump into Texas, and that is there are going to be voices uh, that that uh, are, do not um, agree with with the politics of probably the majority of the folks in this room. You have all, or at least people that have been regular listeners, uh, know that we've got callers that call in and don't agree with uh, a lot of us, and that's okay. I'm going to be as appropriate and polite as I possibly can. If we do get a sense that it's just trying to be annoying for the sake of being annoying, then, of course, we'll block some of these folks um, immediately pop them off stage, uh, throw on a block, and, and kind of keep moving because the goal here is to kind of have a very uh, rich, robust discussion and get some questions answered. So with that, let me go ahead and use that as a segue. Again, if you can invite folks, it would mean a lot to me. Let's talk about Texas. A couple things have happened in the last 48 hours that tells me something is going down in Texas. The first is my good buddy Chuck Rocha, who I do the Latino Vote podcast with, mentioned and started sending over some ads that were coming out of the DCCC showing that in some of the Texas races in the Rio Grande Valley, the Democrats are putting up significant buys. The ones that he sent me, incidentally, looked, they were English only, they were English focused, rather, I should say, and these are in districts that are 70% plus Hispanic. Okay? Now, the fact that we are sitting in mid-September and the Democrats are pushing money into overwhelmingly Hispanic districts in the Rio Grande Valley is a sign of things. It's either a sign that they believe that they need to push their candidate a little bit more to put them into a stronger position to win, or two, they're seeing significant hemorrhaging, significant losses where that vote total is falling in a way that's going to put the race, put the seat, put that House seat in danger in the next six weeks if Republicans make a significant incursion. And by that, what I mean is this. You have to remember that the, the political people on both sides of the aisle that are running these elections for, how, for the House are playing a strategic game of chess. And where they invest in certain races can tip off what their strategy is. And sometimes, very oftentimes, in fact, every time, there's a bluff that we employ to make it look like we are spending money in order to drag people, drag the opposition into a fight and waste money and spend resources where they should not be spending money and resources. Okay, this is a commonly used smart tactic that is used all the time. Hell, the Ukrainians basically used this strategy in fooling the Russians and allowed them to make a significant incursion. If you're not following that, I don't want to get too off topic here, but I love this stuff because there are so many similarities. We call them campaigns, by the way, political campaigns. We took that from military operations, and a lot of the lingo of political campaign people are taken from military conflicts and military battles because politics is basically an extension of war. It's just usually, hopefully not through violent means. 
But the Ukrainians, the reason they were able to make as significant incursions as they were, as fast as they were against the Russians, is because they convinced them through intercepted, quote-unquote, intercepted messages that were designed to be intercepted, that the Ukrainians were going to start making an assault in the southern part of the Donbass. That did not happen. The Russians moved their equipment. As they moved their equipment to bolster that position in the north, the Ukrainians, uh, with really a blitzkrieg move, uh, made huge advances into into the Donbass. So without getting too far into that, that's exactly the type of strategic thinking that we're looking at. And when I'm looking at the chessboard of all the pieces right now, the Rio Grande Valley is very important to me. And the reason why it's important is because this is where we saw movement, undeniable, unmistakable movement in 2020. This, outside of South Florida, is where Republicans have staked their claim on being able to pick up Republican votes in Texas. It's moving Hispanic voters right. This is really kind of ground zero of the Mexican-American rightward shift. And if it continues, it's going to have extraordinary, extraordinary long-term implications for both parties. So both of them have a narrative imperative. I like that. A narrative imperative of preventing any more Republican uh, incursions except for the Republicans, but if a Republican incursion into the Hispanic community will have a significant narrative imperative in the long term. How's that? Better said. Okay. Now, if the Democrats are investing, and again, I think the numbers that will bet they'll also put money up too. Let me get to that in just a second. But the fact that these House seats, that the Democrats in the House are spending money Right now, going into Labor Day, with a very significant investment, messaging to keep the Democratic base solid, to keep these strong Latino um, seats, again, 70-plus Hispanic, um, marginally Democrat by registration, in line with what have been historical trends for Democrats, I don't think is a particularly great sign, okay? It's not necessarily a bad sign. So what are you saying, Mike? Well, let me just put it in historical context. This is the first time probably ever Democrats have ever had to spend this kind of money on, on a Republican versus Democrat race in the Rio Grande Valley. Certainly in the last 50 to 70 years, and we weren't tracking race, you know, spending campaign spending money 50, 60 years ago the way that we were now. So probably ever, okay, the Democrats are being forced to spend money here. Now, it could be um, like I said, it could be a fake, it could be a decoy, it could be what we call flash money. Flash money is when you flash money to show the other side that money is going in there, spend is going in there, and you're trying to fake the other team into spending money. Uh, Republicans, in this case, would be would they would the Democrats are trying to trying to trying to bait Dem- Republicans into spending money in a district that they really don't have a hope in. That could be going on. I think it's likelier that the Democrats are inoculating against the potential of seeing further. They're trying to... ...that starts to go more red in the next 50 days that they're not going to lose those seats. That's what I think is going on. I think this is a very smart defensive play, but it is extraordinarily notable. It's extremely notable that the Democrats have to spend money 
in September in the Rio Grande Valley in overwhelmingly Hispanic districts in Texas. It's a big deal. Now that takes me to Beto O'Rourke. You remember the last time we talked about the polls and what was happening with Beto's race about a month and a half ago, Abbott mentioned heading into August that he was putting up a $2.6 million Spanish language buy. He has also stated publicly that he believes they're going to get Hispanic vote or they're going to get half of the Hispanic vote. Now, of course, he's going to say something like that, right? Because he's, you know, these are his politicians and part of this is the head fake game too, right? So we're going to win half of the Hispanic vote. But here's the thing. That's actually happened in Texas before. Most of you guys know I did independent work with the George W. Bush campaign in 2000 and in 2004. We were getting in the mid-40s in Texas in 2000, and we overperformed that in 2004. This is a community with, if not a deep history, at least a scattered history of showing this type of movement in the past. It has happened. It does happen. And I believe it actually can happen again. I'm not saying it will. I'm not saying it will, at least not in this cycle. But the Republicans are pretty smart to be advancing resources and driving message and building infrastructure into what has historically been core Democratic base. Okay? So Abbott announces in August $3 million. That's significant. That's real money. That's countered today by Beto announcing $2.6 million, which again, if Abbott really was spending that $3 million and he reserved the time, so I think he was, most of that has probably been burned through. So now you see Beto coming in with an even more significant buy heading into the last 50 days. Why is he doing that? Well, the first is they need to get the vote totals up in order for him to be competitive statewide in Texas. They're getting closer, which will take me to the poll that just came out today. They're definitely getting closer, but they're not quite in range. And I believe the last 5% for Beto is going to be harder than the previous 10% because he's running out of good demographic for him. And the Latino vote, the Hispanic vote, should be better for him than it currently is. They are not getting the Hispanic margin. They, meaning Beto and the Democrats, are not getting the Hispanic margin that they need to put a state like Texas into competition. It's not as in play as they would like. And so you are seeing the Democrats push about 50 days out with $2.6 million worth of buy in order to start moving those numbers in their direction. Where the DCCC, the group that is that represents the House Democrats, is putting up a defensive barrier to prevent hemorrhaging, Beto is making an offensive play to start moving Hispanics in his direction. And he's going to have to do it, and he's going to have to do it quick. Now, we have the benefit of seeing today's polling, which again, I'm going to get to in just a second. And I'm going to announce that on September the 22nd, a poll from the Hispanic Policy Foundation is going to be coming out that will show us whether or not this Beto play is going to have movement over the next couple of weeks. And on September 22nd, mic droppers, mark your calendars. 
we're going to have the director of that poll on the show with us to answer questions. So September 22nd is going to be a really good discussion with the pollster of the Hispanic Policy Foundation, which, by the way, predicted the outcome of the Biden-Trump numbers to the percentage point. It, put, it, it predicted it exactly to the numbers, okay? Very, very rare for a poll to do, especially in Texas when most of the polls had the margin a little bit tighter. These guys nailed it exactly right. And I'm going to talk about why, too, once we, once we walk through the first polling. But my point is you're seeing a poll today, which is going to give us a baseline. It shows Beto behind by five percentage points. You're seeing the Democrats start to spend today in the House, $3 million buy. To, uh, uh, um, I don't know what the size of the buy was, but that money has gone up. We should find out, and I'll put it in the chat after the show. But you are seeing Beto move in with two point, uh, with a $3 million buy starting today. Made that announcement. It's going to give us the perfect bench line to talk with a pollster that's going to look in or not this race is moving in the direction that the Democrats need. And what I would strongly suggest and strongly predict is the movement, which you guys always hear me talk about, the movement that we see between today and September 22nd, when that poll is released, is going to tell us everything we need to know on whether Beto O'Rourke can actually win this race or not. Okay, so I'm pretty excited about that. Had a great conversation with the pollster and with Jason Vialba, a good friend of mine, as you you guys know, from Texas. They're going to be on the show. They're going to release the poll first nationally, and we'll be the first live show that actually takes those calls. So make sure that you tune in and uh, be ready to have a really, really great discussion. Bring some really amazing questions, guys, because it's going to be the, an opportunity to talk to some really, really sharp people in this space who know what they're talking about. So right now, polling today, Beto plus five. Here's what's fascinating about the poll. It shows that there is still a wrong track number. A lot of people are not happy with the way that Abbott has run the state. Um, They're not necessarily happy with gun control issues. They are more receptive uh, and more open to pushing for gun controls. I'll, I'll go over some of the numbers specifically in just a second. But they're not particularly happy, not overwhelmingly. By the way, this is still Texas. This is still a, you know, one of the red, big red states in the country and, and, and a huge gun culture there. Abortion is clearly having a factor. It has tightened up this race and brought it into striking distance for Beto. But, and here's where it gets interesting, and here's why I'm saying the last five percentages, the last five percent are going to be a really difficult, really difficult last five miles if we're talking in traveling parlance, the last five miles are going to be really, really tough. And that is Abbott has been stressing and focusing his efforts on immigration overwhelmingly. And the reason why Abbott is focusing on immigration is because that issue is the most promising that he has to prevent the Republican base from hemorrhaging. Immigration is still, even with abortion, remains the most visceral political issue I have ever worked on, ever, from my first campaign, in my first congressional campaign in 1992. Okay, it is the most visceral issue where there's very few undecideds. When you lay that issue out, it separates the sides like the Red Sea. 
you know who's on what side, at least from a voter perspective. You know which voters are going to move where, and they move there with intensity. And they only move extraordinarily uh, on small margins, very infrequently, over very long periods of time. So Abbott's people, what they recognized was, as Texas is diversifying, as there are more white, college-educated voters moving into the Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Austin areas and are offsetting the margins that Republicans historically need to win, it is the immigration issue that is bringing Republican voters back. And for the moment, it's working. Okay? 52% of Texans support Abbott's busing program of sending undocumented um, um, immigrants from that come across the border to Washington, D.C., 52%. Most of them like that, okay? And, and with Republican women, this issue is preventing the dramatic leakage of rep- white suburban college-educated women into the Democratic fold. This is really, really fascinating and insightful data, and the reason is because not only does the issue work, that working in Texas, my strong suspicion is you're going to start seeing other states like Nevada and Arizona start using and employing significant Hispanic populations and with significant college-educated white suburban women that we were watching over the last few weeks move towards the Democrats on the Dobbs decision come back into the fold. That's what's happening, okay? Abbott is leading the charge on this. He's taken a strident, hard right position on immigration, going so far as as busing people to Washington, D.C., essentially as a protest statement. And the polling is showing that it's working. Beto is closing the gap. He's getting some of that post-Dobbs blue tide rising and pushing him up. But the numbers are solidifying an opposition. He's got to win enough Republican votes in a state like Texas in order to be competitive. And he's starting to hit a ceiling, at least at this moment in time. Okay? You have to, let me say that again. This is not California, folks. You have to win, as a Democrat, a a sizable, measurable share of the white, college-educated Republican female vote. These are my Lincoln Project voters, right? This is where I, I bet the whole table that we could beat Trump by going after this demographic, and it worked. This is where Beto has to move the needle in order to win. And he's not getting the numbers that he needs at this point. Now, I don't want to say this is a bad poll for Beto. It's not, okay? He's actually closing the gap, or at least he's staying within striking distance. The last two polls, let me read some quick numbers. off of this for you the recent polls uh for abbott in the last week or so showed abbott at a plus five position a plus two position a plus seven position and a plus seven position those were the last four polls let me say it again abbott plus five abbott plus two abbott plus seven abbott plus seven this poll shows him at abbott plus five okay so he's in that range. He's within striking distance. He's close, 
but he's having trouble. Remember, we're looking for movement. A plus five, plus two, plus seven, plus seven is, is, is a good horse race place to be. It's not great, but it's good. But we're not seeing movement closing in. If you average all five of those, he's at about a plus six. Abbott plus five, plus six. Beto is not popping through that ceiling. And the reason is because Republican voters aren't budging. Republican women aren't collapsing the way that they would like him to, that Democrats would like him to. Okay. Now, perhaps this argues for or explains, I should say, this may explain the strategy, which I couldn't figure out, of Beto going into these deep red rural counties and picking off these voters. And he's done a great job on social media of showing that that is what is happening. But as I also said, I'm not sure it's enough. There's just not enough voters out there to do that. Okay. He needs to get suburban college educated soccer moms more than he needs to get rural non-college educated white people out on their ranches in Texas. That's where the votes are. That's where the numbers are. So I don't want to second guess too much, but that's kind of my job as a professional campaign pro. This is what I look for. Those of you who follow the show know that I was saying, I don't know exactly what Beto and his people are doing. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but for the moment, I just can't figure it out. I just don't get it. There's just not the math says there aren't enough voters there. So now what you see Beto doing is launching this incursion into the Hispanic vote predominantly along the border communities, along counties that touch the border, either with other states or with Mexico, to try to bring and close in the Hispanic vote and see if he can pick up more Democrats there to drive what has historically been a Democrat vote, base Democrat vote, to stop the hemorrhaging, to bring them back from the Republicans, because they're hitting a limit right now with college-educated Republican women. That's the strategic decision that is pretty clear in my mind that Beto's campaign is making. Now, they're going to have enough dollars to fire on both fronts for a while. And by a while, I mean two weeks. And in the next two weeks, which fortunately we will have a pollster with fresh data and fresh numbers jumping on with us on September 22nd, we're going to know those strategies. Okay? You're going to get to see it real push him within five closer to Abbott or whether or not suburban college-educated white women are starting to break his direction and pushing him in that direction. If he gets both, good chance he wins. Good chance that Beto Rourke wins. But they're two different messages. They're two different strategies. They're two different approaches. And it's tricky. Not going to say it's not. It's also why, again, I'll say it one more time, I really don't understand this deep MAGA approach that they were taking. And I don't want to be too critical. I always want to say maybe they're smarter than I am. They're seeing numbers. These are not dumb people. But neither of those, that that strategy does not provide enough numbers mathematically to get to where you need to go if you're a Democrat in Texas. It just doesn't, okay? At least not from Mike Madrid's perspective. So that's the strategy. That's what's happening in Texas today. That's what this whole thing is about. Beto needs two things to happen. He needs Hispanics to fall back into a traditional line when they moved in 2020 and moved in special elections that elected Myra Flores. 
He needs to get them back into the 2018 column. And he needs the Lincoln Project voter, that Republican college-educated soccer mom voter, to move in the Austin, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth suburbs. They need to move significantly or measurably enough to put him in contention. He needs both of those to happen. Okay, He's hitting a ceiling right now where the last five polls were showing he's at, sitting at about an Abbott plus five, I mean Beto minus five. He's got to find those other five points. And at least for the moment, the Dobbs decision, the Uvalde dynamics in Texas are not getting him there. And the reason why is Abbott's strong stance on immigration is holding the Republican line, and it's actually marginally picking up Hispanic voters along border towns and in border communities. That's what's happening. One other quick methodological observation, this poll registered registered voters. A lot of people have kind of written me uh, behind the scenes today as I've been talking about this poll saying it's too late to be focused on registered voters. They should be adjusting to a likely voter screen. Let me spend a little bit of time on that. Registered voters, when you're doing a sample of all the registered voters, you're, you're looking at a much wider universe of people, okay? And that's going to give you a different result than when, as a pollster, you look at historical trends and voting behaviors on who actually votes and use that criteria in order to figure out what the, what the likely voter universe actually is. And if you start to use a likely voter universe screen, there is at least an argument that Beto could actually be closer, Okay. Now, he could also be further apart because a likely voter screen is probably going to include less, less non-college educated uh, um, whites, which would actually argue for a, a, a stronger Beto position, but it also would probably um, cut out a lot of younger voters and a lot more Hispanic voters, both voter groups which benefit Beto. So, Again, it's a methodological question. If I'm a campaign, I'm going to use a likely voter screen. This is not a likely voter screen. It's a registered voter screen. But the truth of the matter is, I think we have enough data. I think there's enough to see what's happening from both activities of Abbott's campaign, Beto's campaign, and the DCCC to know that what I've just put together makes, at least in my mind, a hell of a lot of sense as to where this race is heading. And with that, Let's go ahead and take some questions. Um, I read an article, and I think it might have been in the. Okay. I, I of read course. an article, and I think it might have been in the Texas Tribune about Beto's West Texas um, strategy, and he was talking about when um, George W. Bush was running uh, governor. Maybe. I wanted to ask if um, the immigration issue. Is quite effectively, actually, he's 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 showed Democrats that the way. The question was, should Beto be leaning into the immigration debate? The right. answer is, the answer is yes, absolutely. Oh, wow. And effect, he's effectively shown, he's effectively shown Democrats how to do this. But here's the danger. 
the danger for a Democrat leaning into this is the same danger that a Republican has leaning into the abortion discussion. It's that independent voters don't believe or trust that they're going to be the best person on that issue. And I've talked about this in previous episodes. What Beto O'Rourke has done and should do and what he has taught all Democrats to do is to get in there and say that any discussion on illegal immigration or undocumented migration begins with border security. Republicans all want. Yes, you heard me right. Democrats, Democratic voters want more enhanced. Security. There's nothing racist about saying that. That's good policy. It's great politics. And it's the responsibility. The problem is, it's like a Republican don't trust them. And there's a lot of emotion he's doing handling the border issue and securing the border. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Thanks for the Thank question, you. Brenda. Yeah, you bet. Amy, you're going to be up next in the queue. Apologize for some. I see you in the queue there too. I know we're going to get to your questions. I promise. What a question! Hi, Mike. How are you doing? You. I'm okay. A little frustrated with the technical difficulties, but I think we're going to survive. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Definitely having uh, trouble hearing you, but uh, hearing the answers. Mine is actually not a question. I just want you to know I'm a volunteer on Beto's campaign. I've been doing letter writing. And I, I guess uh, the the letters I've been writing are mostly focused in Houston, Austin, and San Antonio. Like I just get them in back. Yeah. Okay. It's not really a question. It's a comment. Okay, so far the only pollster that I'm liking is Quinnipiac, and that doesn't say much. So after Nate Cohen's article in the New York Times, my feelings have even gotten worse. So I'm I'm very nervous. I'm, you know, about the Senate. I'm, oh, my God. I know I'm not talking about Texas, but with Wisconsin and Nevada, it's just so awful and it just causes angina. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I appreciate help, that. Help me. Like, I, well, I know it's, we're not in November yet, but may, I'm just going to let you talk about that and then hopefully okay. I'll feel better. 
or maybe the worse. Main thing, the, the main thing I can do to comfort everybody is to be honest with you and then kind of figure out what the game plan can be going forward or at least what to be looking for and, the, and, the, and, and to see if the campaigns are reacting. So let, let me back up from a 30,000 know, foot perspective and say, look, it, these are going to be very nervous, nail-biting times. Campaigns are that way, and we all know that there's very, very high stakes at play here. Now, I have been saying, and a lot of people have been criticizing me for the past couple of weeks, that the races are getting tighter. I'm seeing movements that a lot of people are not seeing, and now it's starting to show up in the polls. Okay? You're seeing tightening in Georgia. Abrams is not as strong as she needs to be, and I would be surprised at this point if she actually wins that race. I don't think that she's going to. Can things change? Yes. Governor of Georgia. Warnock, perhaps most importantly because it's a Senate seat, is something we got to look at. We are seeing Walker move into a positive position on the averages. Okay? Wisconsin, Wisconsin is tightening up. Mandela Barnes is not up seven, eight points. Wisconsin has always had a GOP bias. Now, you remember, for those of you that listened to me on the Lincoln Project, the final averages had Wisconsin in a plus six, plus seven position for Biden. We won that thing by 30,000, 40,000 votes. Okay? Right now, the polling has Ross Johnson up one point. In Nevada, I have always said Nevada gives me heartburn because I don't think the Democrats are taking it seriously enough and not pouring the resources into it the way that they needed to to win that race. Now, Cortez Masto may win that seat, but it, this one makes me more nervous than any of them because that trend line is not moving in the direction that it should be. Okay, Now, Kelly, I think, pulls this out in Arizona. I'm a big believer in Arizona. But again, it's tighter. It's in a tighter range than it should be. Now, now, deep breath, okay? I'm going to be honest with you with what I'm seeing, and I've been saying this for a week. Okay, the Democrats got really, really gleeful with a lot of the post-Dobbs stuff. There was the, All that Dobbs did was brought the race into contention into a 50-50 position. Previous to Dobbs, prior to Dobbs, what you saw was a, a red wave. And I'm not a big believer in waves, but the Democrats were going to get just destroyed. Destroyed. Okay? Things have moved markedly in a different direction, but everybody, I think, is dramatically, at least at this point, undercounting the, Repu the, the, the consolidated, enthusiastic Republican base and the yeah. historical trend line. Okay? Yeah. Now... Having said that, all of the special elections that we have had, the New York special, the Nebraska special, the Kansas referendum, all of these states are showing Democrats overperforming the model. Okay? Now, again, I'm not trying to give you all this, you know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to bring in all the data points that I'm looking at, and then I'm going to draw some conclusions for you in the best way that I possibly can. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not going to lie to you. This is, this, is, this is very close, and it's going to be very close. I'm still of the position that the Democrats hold a 50-50 Senate or maybe pick up one Senate seat, and I think they're going to lose the House by about 10, a, a net pickup of, for the Republicans of 10 to 15. I could be wrong. I, I, and look, I, I also reserve the right to change my judgment as we get closer to the election and we start to see how voter sentiment 
moves. What we're going to be looking for in the next 30 to 40 days is whether or not all the messaging and the spending starts to push the polling in the right position. If I'm the Democrats, I'm going to exclusively focus on the abortion issue. If I'm the Republicans, I'm going to focus almost entirely on border issues and the weak economy. And that's going to make it a base turnout election. In that environment, like I said, the historical trend line tells me that the Republicans will probably take the House marginally and they will probably split the Senate because their candidates are so bad. The Republican candidates are so bad. If they had halfway decent candidates, the Republicans would probably be at 53 or 54 seats in the Senate. Okay? They've got terrible candidates. That's the only saving grace. Now, I said 30 to 40 days. What's going to happen in the last 10 days? Mark my words. Everybody write this down. Go ahead and, go ahead and record it. There's going, to be mo- there's going to be a shift one way or the other that's noticeable, that's discernible, that's going to be the momentum that is going to push the party that's going to win in that direction. Now, you're saying, oh, of course that's going to happen. No, not of course. There's nothing, there's nothing scientific behind that other than kind of a group mentality where all of the demographics that have been targeted and messaged at for the past 18 months consolidate and people make up their minds and voter opinion shifts. In 2020, this vote shifted towards the Republicans down ticket. Okay, The numbers that we were seeing in the public showed Biden in a much stronger position. What this is really going to come down to is the Dobbs stuff has now, I think, been factored in. I'm not sure that the polling is necessarily adjusting it if all the polling has been weighted for higher Dem turnout. But I think it's there. I think that we have seen it, and I would bet my house on it. The question is not whether that's going to show up and whether the Democratic base is going to consolidate. That's not the question. The question to be asking is, is it enough to offset Republican enthusiasm? And don't mistake that. Um, this, this is the frustration I'm having with a lot of the Democratic pundits and a lot of the people that are reading public polls and making all these platitudes about it. And as I've said before to all you new mic droppers, the difference between this show and the cable news shows is I actually run campaigns. Those people don't. So what they do is they just look at the top-line polls and say, oh, well, this has got to be what's going on, and that sets the media narrative. That media narrative, by the way, does not drip into, it does not seep into the consciousness of the vast majority of the American electorate. That's not the way campaigns work. So if you're following all of that, the nonsense on MSNBC and CNN or, or heaven forbid, Fox, that you're not getting a good representative look at what's happening with the electorate. You're hearing a bunch of elites and talking heads speaking to each other, but you're not getting the sense or what we call the mood of the electorate. That's what's different about this show. Okay, so that late shift is going to break one way or the other. It could break overwhelmingly for the Democrats. That's entirely possible. And that is not what I would have said eight weeks ago. It's also entirely possible it could break for the Republicans, which is where we thought we were eight weeks ago. In fact, it is exactly where we were eight weeks ago. The good news is 
the trend line has brought Democrats into contention. But when you see Biden's numbers going up, when you see the generic ballot getting better, and when you start to see some of these Democrats doing well over the course of the past five, six, seven weeks in the post-Dobbs environment, anybody who is saying that there's going to be a blue wave or the Democrats are going to take over or buck the historical trend, I think are crazy. It's a coin toss. And I think the elections, at least if they were held today, would reflect that. They would show that there's going to be Probably no or little change in the Senate. If so, I think marginally for the Democrats. And I think it's going to follow a historical trend line in a much smaller way for the Republicans. A normal Republican year would have them picking up 35, 40 seats. If they get away with only 15, that is a huge, huge victory for the Democrats. And and I'm going to say this again. I know this doesn't feel good. So you may need to drink a cup of glass of warm tea. And relax a little bit when I say it, but I'm going to assure you everything is going to be okay. If we end up, folks, with a Democrat 50-50 Senate or a Democrat plus one Senate and a House majority of 15 or so, that's a pretty good night given everything that the Democrats have working against them. And, And here's the most important point. If that's the case, the likelihood of a Democrat winning the White House in 2024 goes up exponentially, considerably. Okay? Elliot, the guy who works for The Economist, I think it's Morris, Elliot Morris. Yeah. He said, he said, listen, folks, if if the Republicans take the House... It's actually a good thing for the Democrats yeah. in 2024 because yeah. then people will be reminded. Yeah, well, that's it. Remember, in a negative partisanship era, people vote against things. And if you have a small, unworkable, unmanageable, unwieldy, chaotic majority for the Republicans, that's the best advertisement for the Democrats and electing a Democrat in the White House you could possibly have. I agree with him. I agree with Elliot. Sometimes he's uh, sometimes I, I disagree with him a lot, but I agree with him on that. Elliot is also pointing out the bias in a lot of these polls where most of the states that lean Democrat, that have a Democrat lean, even in Nate Silver's polling averages, are states where um, um, are, are in battleground states that are actually have a, 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 a more likelihood of going Republican. Republican, the Democrat. That includes Wisconsin. That includes Wisconsin. That includes Georgia. It includes Pennsylvania. But I'm convinced Pennsylvania is fine. Okay. But yeah. but but I, I look. This is. I mean, figure out whatever your self care regimen is. This is going to be difficult. Self care. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's not tea. It's a martini. Oh, martinis <laughs> are good. Martinis are better. That's more campaign talk, and I appreciate it. <laughs> Melissa, th- thank you for joining the call, okay. and thank you for your patience. Thanks. No problem. You bet. Amy, Madam Patience, my apologies for earlier the challenges that we had. Go ahead and unmute. I think you were talking about Collier, or was that Laura? No, uh, that was Laura. But, okay. Uh, I have a comment and, and question, actually, uh, about Beto. I've been... Um, I, somewhere I heard that he has like 77,000, 78,000 volunteers on his campaign. And uh-huh. I'm one of them. I live in Indiana, you know, so okay. I've been doing letter writing campaigns. And so just a comment, um, most of the letters I've been writing have to uh, Austin. So I get 
batches and I just write, you know, and so I'm supposed to hold them until October 10th if we send them out. So just FYI, that seems to be that strategy. Uh-huh. Um, I guess my question would be, because you do run Tiffany, do you think that, I, I'm kind of wondering if they have a boots on the ground or, you know, people write, people phone banking. I do get two texts a week from him to phone bank for him. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So, do you think that he's having all the boots on the bourbon? The bourbon. Amy, Amy, I don't know if it's you or if it's me, but you're breaking up. Is that you or is that me? I don't know. It sounded like there was a lot of. It sounded like there was air traffic. Can you hear yeah. me? Yeah. Yeah, I can hear you now, but you were really cracked up over the last part of that. I think where you're going is saying that there's a really broad-based national volunteer base working for Beto that's pushing really hard, and it's yeah, very strategic, yeah. and it's very well-resourced and very well-planned. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I think I, I have no doubt, and I have no doubt that it's probably a factor of five or six times better than what Abbott has put together. Okay, but the, okay. the truth of the matter is it, it needs that to get into a, a competitive spot. And I want to encourage you strongly to continue doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, but my, yeah. job, my job is also to be realistic and look at the assessment. Texas is a tough, tough state for Democrats, like yeah, really yeah. tough. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's, what you're doing is phenomenal and it's great, great work. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encourage you to continue doing that. But I do want you to go in with your eyes wide open. Is if is if you're not doing that, I think his chances of winning are are very, 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 very small. Yeah. But even with that work, it's it's still an outside chance. Beto was not the odds-on favorite. He's in a negative five position. I believe that that's probably exactly where he's at. Mm-hmm. And we're we're gonna know in two weeks if those numbers move and they tighten up. That I'm gonna say, get your friends and neighbors to start calling into Texas because. The movement, the shift of the numbers is moving in that direction. If he's stuck at five, I'm going to say, you know what? You may want to call into Nevada because the cha- the chances of defending Cortez Masto are, are, is much more important as an efficiency move than it is trying to, to make a bank shot and get Beto to win. I just I, I don't see Beto being any more than a 35, 40% shot at winning right now. It's just Texas. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And I, I just a comment I want to say. I also am trying to. I'm in Indiana, so I'm trying to support Tim Ryan. But with him, I've just I give a very small amount of monthly um, donation. Uh-huh. The, the the difference between Beto and Ryan, it, it's really interesting. The the text messages I get, Beto, it's always can you letter write? Can you phone bank? Can you join? You know, he he's always asking for volunteers. Interesting. Brian is always asking for money, but I am, I'm a monthly donor. Yeah. You know, a yeah. very small amount, but I'm a monthly donor, and he's always asking for for money. It's just interesting to me, the, it, the difference. That is interesting. I, what I will say is Beto has a much larger national operation, and his cash flow is probably in a much, much more significant position and more reliable and stable position than Ryan's is. Ryan's got to build it. Beto's had two big runs. Where yeah. he's, he's got a ton of people. His lists are extremely large. And so yeah. he probably has enough monthly donors to cash flow this thing and meet all of his spending obligations through the end of the campaign. I'm not saying that's why he's doing it. Let me tell you one other reason why they might be doing it. That's because what they are doing is they know that they can turn volunteers into donors later in the cycle. 
Right. So if, right. if you're somebody who's willing to make phone calls and write letters or send postcards, in th- two, three, four, five weeks, if more news comes out that's good, they're going to start saying, give me 10 bucks. Can you, can you spare five bucks? Can you give me 25, 50 bucks? Can you give me 100 bucks? And, and anybody, anybody who's a donor is more likely to convert. I'm sorry, a volunteer is more likely to convert to a donor because you're already saying, I'm going to give you my life energy. I'm willing to spend my spare time because I'm committed. And at that point, you can probably get that person to give a few bucks as heightened anxiety starts to really set in with everybody. And everybody's asking, have I done everything I can do? Let me dig a little bit deeper. Let me not buy that coffee on Friday and send that five bucks into Betha. That's, that's a good chance of what's going on. That makes total sense. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Thank, thank you for you. your call. Thank, thank you for your patience. Again, I really, really appreciate it. Kelly, uh, you're going to step up into the spotlight. Go ahead and unmute that button on the lower right. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah. How are you, Kelly? I'm doing great. Um, I'm going to geek out a little bit. I can't believe I'm you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'm, I, I just have to say, I've, I've listened to you a long time on Politicology and Lincoln Project before that, and um, you know, I know they always rag you for being a pessimist, but I have to say I truly appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> it, it I think the, well, thank you. I appreciate real, it. The, the doses of realism sort of sort of help me focus and say, okay, it, you know, might not be this this win, but we keep fighting, and, and maybe it's the next one. So, I appreciate it. Um, thank you, Kelly. That means the world the to me. Ohio I appreciate theme. those comments. Yeah. <laughs> um, carrying on with the Ohio theme that the the previous caller kind of ended with. Um, I am in Ohio. Uh, I think the days of as Ohio goes, so goes the country are sadly over. Um, yeah. I guess i kind of curious, do you think that the demographic kind of shift is so against Ohio that things aren't going to look good for a long, long time? Or, um, you know, do you kind of have any insight on that? Are there, are there persuadable, movable populations? Yeah. yeah. So that's a great question. Yeah. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Okay, yeah, no problem. So, so look, it's a great question. And I, I've obviously spent a lot of time on this, and, and those of you that have been following me for a while, and I appreciate your support and your kind words, know that I'm a big believer, uh, not just in data and numbers, but in trend lines. I believe that they're telling us something because I really, really believe that demographics underlines 90% of our politics. And if you can understand demographic shifts, you can get a very keen insight and understanding as to what is going to face the country and your part of it, your respective state or region, um, from a political framework. So Ohio, not unlike western Pennsylvania, not unlike some of the Rust Belt states, not unlike uh, some of the Great Lakes states, has one troubling demographic in common that, that causes me some concern. And that is it has a higher number of non-college educated whites than the national average. In fact, that region is where most of ours, with the exception of the Deep South, are concentrated. And what that means is that they are going to behave the way that the party that is speaking to them are going to behave. And it's why Ohio is really not a bellwether state anymore, and it wasn't in 2020. I spent no dollars in Ohio with the Lincoln Project. I spent none, okay? Because one is there were other, other, other ways to get around it. And where did I go? Let, let, where, did, where did Mike say, let's go spend the money here? We spent money in Georgia, 
in Arizona, my favorite state, which Arizona is the new Ohio, by the way. <laughs> and, and I was pushing the envelope to test the case in North Carolina. What do those three states have in common? They have a growing number of college-educated white voters that exceeds the national average. And this is really important because that voting demographic is the demographic that determines elections. I'm in the Napa Valley right now. I just gave a speech to a big group. This is probably why I'm getting bad phone reception. But one of the things that I said, which I thought was, which was, was accurate, which is you know, kind of nice to be able to say accurate things when you're giving a speech, was if you took the top 20 contested house races and you ranked them by the number of college graduates or by the percentage of college graduates, that is probably going to be the best indicator of which seats are going to move towards the Democrats and away from the Republicans. That's really fascinating. And the challenge in Ohio is that it's not growing industries that's attracting those workers the way you're seeing Charlotte in North Carolina, right, or, or Atlanta and the suburbs in, in, in Gwinnett and DeKalb counties in, in Atlanta, Georgia, or in Maricopa County in Arizona, or even, even Austin, Houston, Dallas-Fort Worth, right, which is why those states, all of which are in the Sun Belt, by the way, have been moving towards a purple position. They're moving more Democrat. Okay, the last four, five, six elections show those races tightening up. Now, if you look at the Great Lakes, if you look at the Iowas, if you look at the Wisconsin's, even Wisconsin's a little bit anomalous because the area around the University of Madison has a high, high number of college graduates, okay? And so it offsets an Iowa, for example. But even New Hampshire, if you look at the northern states, if you look at states that have industries that don't have these high-tech workforces, and these, these, this new generation of people with very prog- progressive cultural outlooks who have very um, positive, optimistic views of their economic conditions you start to see a shift towards the Republican Party. They're all moving redder. And it's all, all directly correlate to white, non-college-educated voters. Now, of course, that's a, that's a very broad, sweeping statement, but it's also true. Okay, and That doesn't mean every non-college-educated white voter is going to be voting for Republicans. It just means that that's where the trend line is. And the irony is, is the North is kind of voting like the South used to, and the South is voting like the North used to, right? Yeah, I keep saying that our, our state legislature is trying to make Ohio the new Alabama, and they're doing a really good yeah. job. Yeah, well, that's a great, I mean, that's a great way to put it, Kelly. That's exactly right, and that's unfortunate because a lot of it is leaning into the identity politics of white, blue-collar workers. There's a reason why Kevin McCarthy... On uh, yeah, the, the, the same day Joe Biden gave his Independence Day speech, went to a blue-collar factory in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Like, that is the symbology of the, of the, the blue-collar working-class factory worker, the manufacturing base. That is exactly who the Republicans are leaning into, and that is a disproportionate number of the workers and voters in a state like Ohio. Is that helpful? You... you, you threw a nice dose of pessimism on it, so I appreciate it. Well, well and, 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 I, and I, I, I hate, I hate, yeah, and uh, look, I, and I, I hate to do that because, I, and as I share with you guys on Politicology and, and, and this podcast, 
everything does sound doom and gloom when Mike Madrid explains it, but I do have to always follow up and say, I'm actually very optimistic about where the medium long-term trends of this country are heading. I do believe that the next six, four to six years are going to be extremely challenging. But I am, I am certain, as certain as I've ever been, that not only are we going to come out of it as a country, we're going to come out of it a better and stronger country for the fight because we are struggling. This is our moment, guys. This is the moment where we get to rebuild our national character. This is the moment where we get to prove to ourselves and to the generations behind us what freedom means and what the value of freedom really is. We get the chance to actually beat authoritarians, not pretend like wearing a mask is tyranny. We get to actually say this struggle is something that was worthwhile in handing it over to the next generation. And damn it, let's quit being afraid that it's hard work and that it's meaningful work and that it's consequential work and that it's important work. Because every day you get up and every day you message out there into social media or volunteer like the previous caller did into other states or, or are able to contribute money to the right candidates, you are adding to the character that we need to get past this bullshit. And we're gonna. We're gonna, but just like everybody has these personal setbacks in life, you can either succumb to it and kneel down and say, forget it, we're too, we're too weak, or you can get up and, and go right at it and tackle the problems and get rid of this. We're gonna win. Every generation of Americans, every single one of them has won fights of as great or greater consequence. This is our moment, and that's why I'm optimistic. I know it sounds strange, but we actually get to rebuild an American nation and hand that off. And I'm sorry to go off on this speech, but I'm, I love this. I love this moment because there's conflict, because we get to prove to ourselves that we're better than what we've been for the last 30 years. America hasn't had a conflict. It's like a Seinfeld sitcom for 30 years. And what happens is without, without consequence, without meaning... Without substance, without fight, all you know what happens? You turn on yourself. That's what we're doing. And stupid shit like masks and anti-vaccine shit takes place. And now we got to go in and dig it out and prove that it's garbage and beat the authoritarians the way we did two generations ago. And we're going to do it, guys. We're gonna, come on. Come on, we're going to beat these guys. If I'm going to lose, I'm not going to lose to a bunch of MAGA guys. I'm not going to lose to a bunch of guys in red hats who don't believe in facts. Like, that's not going to happen. It's not. It's not going to be easy, but it's not supposed to be easy. So anyway, I apologize for going on that that speech. Yeah. Well, thank (laughs) you. Thank you for being supportive and thanks for being here. Okay, yeah, I'm not, I'm not pessimistic. I'm just ready for the fight. I want to, I want a clear look at the battlefield. That's all it is. Okay. That's beautiful. Thank you. I love it. Thanks, Kelly. You bet. Next caller. Sorry, guys. Thank you so much for being patient and dealing with the with the uh, technical difficulties. Uh, you got a question for me? Yeah. Oh, quick question. So, yeah. You know, we were we were talking about Brazil, how the protestants uh, affect uh, the elections, and then we were reading. I guess recently a red kick popping out in my reading is like Christianity the religion how it affects elections and then we were you we were saying like oh the Hispanic is growing and then 
know, we're gonna have a better, I guess, a better future. But then, some, I guess, articles will say like the Hispanics are leaning towards the right, and then are becoming more Protestants, like the white Christians or evangelists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, it's the future. Should we be worried? Because we we concerned about election every 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 election cycles. Yeah, but when you talk about religion on fusing with politics, they yeah. are they are very motivated because when you say God, it's kind of like the Muslim. Yes, when you use yeah. religion, yeah, you cannot beat this kind of. I mean, like we cannot challenge their ideas, their policy. They're gonna. They have more momentum than us. They meet every Sunday. So yeah, but they're but they're also smaller than than the, the public. So let me let me uh, let me spend a little bit of time on this. And as I've mentioned before, I believe demographics is destiny. If you understand demography, there's an explanation for the populism that's happening. There's a reason for the the identity, the racial identity, tribalism that we're experiencing. There's also a good explanation for the rise of the and the I would argue the extremism of evangelical Christianity. Now let me let me big qualifier here. I'm I'm a person of faith. I believe that there is a place for good people of faith in the public square. I believe very strongly in a separation of church and state. And I'm not trying to be overly critical of evangelical Christianity. But I also believe in science and facts and numbers. And when I look at the correlation between the rise of Christian nationalism, it's not happening with Catholics. It's not happening with Muslims. It's not happening with Buddhists. It's happening with evangelical Christians, self-identified. And there is a very close correlation, very close, frighteningly close correlation between white nationalism and Christian evangelical, evangelicalism. In fact, they're, they're becoming indistinguishable. Okay, And a lot of this has to do with the history, and I'm not an expert on religiosity or American religion, but a lot of this has to do with a lot of the, the, the traditions that were created, established, born in the United States and the divinity within which it was espoused. And by that, what I mean is there is a deep, long history of American Christianity that believes that America is a divine place. The whole concept and idea of manifest destiny. Uh, to a certain extent, American exceptionalism is closely correlate to the Christian religion and the Christian faith. And that's where we're at when it gets very, very dangerous when you start to equate bloodlines and religiosity with, quote-unquote, patriotism, because that's not patriotism, it's nationalism. And that's what Trump really deeply stoked. He's not a man, obviously, of faith. He's not a man or a believer in God. He's a man who believes in power. And like many, 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 many centuries of human existence, religious leaders have abused this power that they can connect both religious and national identity to make people do extreme things. As human beings, our own understanding of God and our place in the cosmos is an extraordinarily powerful motivator. It's an extremely powerful identity. It's one of the most central things as human beings that we have. Second, second behind it is our nationality, is our, my country, 
This is who I am. This is where I live. This is the history of my people. This is where my ancestors developed our culture and our history, and it is where I will fight to protect those that will come after me from my bloodlines. And so when you put these in a Petri dish, it's extraordinarily dangerous. Dangerous at a time in human history where we are seeing migration occur at unprecedented levels. And it's why you see evangelical Christianity in places like Brazil start to become the basis for a fascist authoritarian movement. Many of you know I just got back from Brazil, focused on the presidential campaign there about a month ago. One of the most fascinating things was the fastest rising... By the way, Brazil is the largest Catholic country in the world, but it is rapidly moving towards evangelical Christianity, and it's almost entirely directly correlate to white-skinned people. That's nationalism. It's religious nationalism. And it's dangerous because it, 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 it has an end-of-times flavor to it. If you saw Lauren Boebert's statement about wanton killings, which she meant to say wanton killings, what she's really saying is the end of times are coming, and don't be afraid of that. Be honored by that, because we get to help guide it and bring that to fruition. We get to bring the prophecy, the end of days, to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's horrifying to people who don't subscribe to that theory, which is, by the way, most of us. And let's not forget that. They don't outnumber anybody. Okay? That type of thinking is not mainstream. And what we need is more moderate Christians to point it out and say, that's not okay. Remember after 9-11, there was this big bu uh, bugaboo about moderate Muslims? Where are the moderate Muslims? Why aren't they pointing out the extremists? If that's not your religion, why aren't you saying it? Well, folks, how come we don't say that about Christians? <laughs> it's because they're white. It's because they're Americans. But it's the same type of extremism. To be able to say that is not reflective of what the American nation is or the American nation should be is precisely what is required at this moment, and we are not hearing it. I think part of it is, and I'm going to wrap up on this, part of it is because we are so shocked by what is happening to our own country that we're not ready to formulate the language, and we actually feel a little bit awkward when we call it out, but that's exactly what it is. It took Joe Biden a lot, trust me, a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of fighting in the Oval Office to give the speech he gave at Independence Hall. For the first time since Abraham Lincoln, a president of the United States stood up and said, fellow Americans are the biggest domestic threat and the most destabilizing influence we have in the American Republic today. The enemy is us, is what Joe Biden said. And he's right. He's right. But those words are of such great consequence that they have not been spoken because it has not happened in 150 years. And the last time they were spoken, we ended up in a civil war. So those aren't words you put out lightly. But this Christian nationalism is a feature of the American Republic we are going to be living with for the next two decades. Funny, and I, now, now I'm really going to wrap up on this. Sorry, guys. I'm getting speechifying again. But here, here's the deal. Most white evangelicals are over 60 years old in this country, okay? And they are being replaced by people who are leaving organized religion of all stripes very, very, very quickly. 
And for those of you that are new to Mic Drop and to those of you that have listened for some time, you will recognize what I'm saying by these words, which I will say again. We are in a foot race between an emerging America demographically that wants to see the American experiment not only continued but expanded to see the rights of all types of pluralistic diverse people enfranchised. We are in a foot race every day that we get closer with those of a more monolithic, white, Christian, overwhelmingly male persuasion, and that is now trying to tear it down before, quote-unquote, those people take it over. And every election cycle, there will be setbacks, but every election cycle, we get closer to that demographic exiting the planet. Okay, And I'm not wishing that, but what I am saying is there's a demographic reason why all of this is happening. So with that, long, long diatribe, to our most patient of all speakers, I'm going to bring Laura back up, who is uh, going to uh, uh, be the patron saint of patience uh, for her sitting through the technical difficulties earlier. Laura, I think you wanted to ask a question about the lieutenant governor's race in Texas. Yes. Um, All right. So, first, I followed you from um, Lincoln Project to Politicology, and finding you here is is a treasure. So, I, I thank oh, you thank so much. You. And you have been like that North Star anchor, oh. all those things. So, um, thank you. Thank you so much. I love you guys. I can't tell you. I mean, obviously, I love hearing that. It's nice and it's kind. But th- that's why I do that. Okay, that that's why I do this. Is is I've gotten so much of that feedback. I feel like I've got an obligation to do that. And I know that sometimes what I say is sometimes unsettling, as it was to Melissa a little bit earlier. I get it. Right. I get it. I, a part of me is 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 hooked on that chaos. That that chaos drug. If so I've been doing campaigns for thirty years, it's not the healthiest profession, by the way. It's one of the most stressful professions you could actually ever pick, especially when you're the guy that's got to, or woman who's got to make the decisions. Because I'll tell you what, when you're right, everybody thinks you're a genius. When you're wrong, everyone thinks you're an idiot. So it's complete, you know, zero sum business. That's why I try to do my best to share as a practitioner what I'm seeing. And again, the hope is the hope is to bring you guys some comfort so that even if things aren't breaking the way that you would like them to or the way that you think we're safe and secure as a country, you can understand the underpinnings of what is going on and what the trajectory of the country is. But, Laura, I really, really appreciate those kind words. It means a lot. I can't. I can't hear that enough because it reminds me that I'm doing things and I'm on the right track. By the way, I'm still very much on politicology. Ron and I talk all the time. He's one of my dearest friends uh, for obvious reasons. Um, that, that show is just growing uh, constantly, and I love, I love uh, the topics and the guests that we have. So thank you for being a fan of both the Lincoln Project and uh, politicology, and, and now mic drop as, as long as it continues. So let me talk about the, the Texas – did you want me to talk about Texas lieutenant governor's race? Um, or no, uh, yes, to, if you, got, you can yeah, change questions if you comment, want. I yeah. have a comment and a question. So okay. The comment, kind of going back to the beginning, you're talking about you're not sure, scratching your head about Beto being in places where he may not be able to move the vote. Yeah. I feel like he, there was a thing, it might have been in the Texas Tribune where he was talking about, it might have even been in, during a governor's race where George W. Bush in mm-hmm. the 90s, like, was, he was like, he, uh, Beto was like, he was in El Paso all the time and he yeah. actually took 
El Paso. So I think yeah. Beta was saying that he's basically trying to follow W's. Um, <laughs> this is a little, little I love that. Um, I love that. Beto's trying to use um, his things. So, yeah, um, Beto's using George W's playbook. Yeah. So, yeah. Let me let me let me address that because I was involved with some of that stuff. Um, re- okay. Remember, let's go for for those of you that can go in the wayback machine with me. You'll remember. Whoa. It's okay. So. Um, <laughs> this has been the best call-in ever. This has been the best mic drop we've ever had. <laughs> Thanks, Laura, for that. Appreciate that. God, it takes me back to those days when I was a young campaign manager working congressional races with my client and my little ones uh, yelling in the background. Don't feel bad about that at all. I love that. Love, love, love it. Okay? So what she's referring to was a really important moment where George W. Bush was considering running for president of the United States. And what he did was very, very smart move. This is actually Carl Rove's strategy. What Carl said was, if we can run up the vote, the Hispanic vote, in uh, you know heading into the 2000 uh, primaries, we are going to establish ourselves as a front runner because we are uniquely positioned to do that as a Republican to show that we can get a huge share of the Hispanic vote. The good part is, the good part was for him is we didn't really have. A, a serious Democratic contender. It's kind of like Gavin Newsom right now running against Brian Dolly. Unless you're from California, even if you're from California, you probably didn't even know the name of the Republican challenger to Gavin Newsom for governor this year. Most of you probably didn't even know Gavin's got a challenge, right? Because he's out there hammering on DeSantis and hitting Abbott. Well, he's running for re-election. Now, he's going to win by 25 points, and that was exactly where George W. found himself heading into 2000. What W. did was we decided, and he brought on a lot of us as Latino experts in the party, to start running up his numbers in the border states and in El Paso. And what he was doing was he was demonstrating not only that he was going to be an inclusive, quote-unquote, compassionate conservative, he was also saying, I can win the Hispanic vote the way no other Republican can, and if I can win the Hispanic vote, it's game over. The Democrats can't win. Now, that could only come from a border state governor, by the way. You weren't seeing, you know, the, the governors of Massachusetts or, or representatives from the Great Lakes area with this strategy. You certainly weren't seeing Republicans in the Deep South doing that. It had to be either a Californian, a New Mexican, an Arizonan, or a Texan, and that's where George W. Bush found himself. It's different, though. It's different than what Beto is doing. Okay? He may be pushing the veneer of saying, I can win and convert these votes, and that's fine. But when we were doing that with George W. Bush, we didn't have a real race on our hands. Beto's got the fight of his life on his hands. And I'm not saying that what he's doing is not a good strategy. Like I said, what I'm saying is the jury's out. I just may not be that smart. I just don't see it. And I'm also not saying he's not getting votes. He's not converting people. I think he is. But I don't think he's converting enough. He's not fishing in the barrel where there are enough fish. Okay? He's fishing. He's out there. He's meeting people. He's talking to people. You see him on social media today. I'm a gun owner. I'm a lifelong Republican. I'm voting for Beto O'Rourke. That's great. That's cool. That's good. That demonstrates that he's got some breadth. But he should be, again, in my estimation, he should be in the suburbs of Austin. He should be in the suburbs of Dallas and Fort Worth. He should be in the burbs of Houston, talking to Republican women, going, you know what? I'm with that guy. 
don't go after the rancher vote that's you know whose no, nearest neighbor is like 30 miles away go to where you people live in a cul-de-sac for goodness sakes and you can knock out 10 15 20 of these voters and communicate to them on their messages with that demographic that's who you need that's where the votes are that's where the math is to win a race the size of texas there just aren't enough fish in the barrel where he's fishing now could be wrong and I, you know he, he may prove me wrong but right now especially when i'm seeing his spend and when this poll comes out today showing me that he's not breaking through the republican base the way that he needs to that tells me he probably ought to be in the burbs talking to women it's a lot of sense um so yeah. my the other part of my question is about Mike Collier. I saw your drip, drip, drip tweet, and you've got the Republican from the Panhandle and Almarillo, and then of course the Tarrant County. That's my home county, and um, the 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 judge basically saying like we need to vote Collier. He he, he knows yeah he's beans. He knows what he's doing. And this is significant in Texas, by the way, right? Um, you know, the, you got a crazy lieutenant governor in Texas. Um, and when you've got Republicans, trust me, I know, you all know me, you know my history. When you come out and you step out against the party, especially in these times, there's no road back. You're done. Like, you are, you are the scapegoat. They're going to, they're gonna, you know, cast you out into the desert to die of exposure. Like, that's what happens. So these people are basically saying, I- I'm done. And they're doing it in a high-profile way because they know that it's important. The challenge is, in a statewide race, and they've got like 27 constitutional offices, right? There's like 27 down-ticket offices in Texas. The ability to get information to these lower-level offices is extremely, extremely difficult. And so that's not likely to happen. You're likely to see if, if Abbott wins by five points or more you will probably see a sweep of all of those offices down ticket. It's not like 13 Republicans win and 12 Democrats win or 8 Republicans win and 17 Democrats and they're split ticketing and the voters know everybody who's whatever. In Texas, you pull a partisan ballot, right? So most, 85%, 90% plus, are going to vote a straight ballot, a straight ticket. And it's extremely important to have a strong top of the ticket hey, Mike, in that scenario. Hey, Mike, yeah. in 2020, the Texas legislature did away with the straight ballot. We don't have straight ballot anymore. Well, even better. Tells you how old I am. Uh, that doesn't. That, thank you for that. that that's helpful. But that, that doesn't change the calculus, right? What happens is voters have an 85% plus propensity to vote for the party with which they affiliate. In Texas, you also don't register with a party. In the primary, you pull a party ballot. A little bit different, okay? But we can still pull and check because people self-identify as Republican or Democrat when you ask them or, or independent. But most importantly, you still pull a party ballot. And that party ballot, we know that history. We don't know who you voted for, but we know whether or not you pulled a Republican or Democratic ballot. And that gives us a really strong indication of which party you're a member for. Probably a little bit too much in the weeds for, for everybody, but a little bit, probably a little bit helpful for people that don't follow taxes that much. So what that means, what that means is um, you need to really focus on the top of the ticket because the stronger the performance at the top of the ticket the greater the likelihood the coattails are down ticket. 
if you've got a candidate who's going to be losing by 10, 15, 20 points, chances are you've got 20 people underneath you that are going to do really, really poorly also. If it's a very competitive race, then the other down-ballot races will be much more competitive, but you've got to really focus on the top of the ticket, and that's another reason why Beto's got to, got to strengthen the position that he's in. So if Mike wins and Beto loses, like, is that a scenario or that happens? Well, it's, or always, no? it's, it's always a scenario, but it's extremely unlikely. I mean, look, I think you're going to see that in Georgia. I think Warnock's going to win. I think everyone's going to lose. I think it could happen in Wisconsin. I, th- I think you could. I mean, there's, a, there's a possibility it happens in Arizona. So, so, yes, it could be. They tend to be in highly, highly, highly competitive states where the vote differentials come down to less than 1%. Texas doesn't meet that criteria. Texas is not that close, guys. It sounds like it is, but, but five points, it's not that close. It's close enough to be paying attention. It's close enough to be working at it because things could break in that direction. But at the moment, five points is, you know, if he loses by five points, that's, that's still a pretty good beating. Thank you. Laura, thank you. Thank you so much for being patient. I really, really appreciate it. Peggy, longtime listener, big super fan supporter. Thanks for coming on stage with Mic Drop. Go ahead and unmute that button. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Good. How are you? Great. So appreciate you hanging around through all the technical difficulties. Never mind us. We're here with you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you guys hanging in. That must have been really frustrating. So thank you for, for hanging in there. A, a little bit, but I kept putting in the chat, hang in there, hang in there. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of the stuff with the technical difficulties were, were about Beto. Uh-huh. And I'm hearing that like the third rail for Democrats is immigration, right? So, but then I'm also hearing that I think Beto needs to lean into that. How How is he going to do that if it's pretty much a third rail for Democrats? It, it, well, that's, that's a good, well, that's exactly that's the problem that, that you just you, you just you just helped me answer the, 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 the question. OK, look, it's like I said, I, and I'm trying to explain this by showing the similarities of the problems that Republicans are currently facing with abortion. Right. That's their third rail. Right? That's their third rail. Well, all that does is it consolidates their base, but eliminates everybody else. Right. That's that's the problem Democrats have on immigration, okay? In, in Texas, anyway. What that means is independents and conservative-leaning Democrats are like, I'm with Abbott. I may be a Democrat. I kind of like some of these issues, but immigration is the top issue, and I don't believe that the Democrats or Beto O'Rourke is actually going to do anything. One of the great ironies, one of the great ironies of this whole debate is there's only so much a, a governor can do on immigration anyway because it's federal policy. This gets, into why, this gets into why Republicans fight on these cultural issues and why I think we're a little bit better at it than Democrats. Rick Wilson uh, you know, says that cultural issues are where Democrats go to die. Right. You know, the, the Republicans have done a good job of, 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 of really framing these issues as touchstone issues, right? Critical race theory or, or whatever they are. The Democrats have, have been given a gift with, with I mean, I don't mean it, I mean, it's obviously an unfortunate setback, but politically, the abortion issue brought back, Dobbs brought back all of their base and then some. But so here's, here's, here's the answer. Beto doesn't have a choice but to lean into it. Wow. Because he's got to show 
that he is not, he can't be pushed out or at least gets or secures some of those moderate Republican, moderate independent, moderate Democrat voters that otherwise wants to vote for him. He's got to give him a reason to stay with him. But, and this is really important, this is the last part of your question, there's no other demographic to go to. There's nowhere else he can go. He's trying to get back these Hispanics that have been shifting rightward, especially in the Rio Grande and on the border. He's doing that. Right. He's, he's actually going into, as we were talking about earlier with Laura, into deep MAGA countries, these deep red counties, excuse me, not countries, counties, added an R there. And he, that's where he can go. He can pick up some of them on the margin. But like I said earlier, that's not going to be enough. He's got to go to these, these college-educated women. And what's happening in Texas right now is there is a debate in the minds of a lot of Republican women in the suburbs that are saying, am I more afraid of the illegal immigration stuff or am I more afraid of the loss of my rights that I had with Dobbs? Like that's wow. a, I know, yeah, it's shocking. I know it's shocking to people in the phone. That is exactly what is happening, and and for Abbott, he's holding on to that vote right now. Like even even in Texas, it's not breaking through with Republican women to the numbers that he needs. If if the polling is accurate, okay, you can always say the polling is wrong and go ahead and say that. I'm not going to say you know. I'm not in. I'm in. I'm not in the gut reaction business. I'm in the numbers business. So if the numbers, if anyone's got numbers to show me, then show me. And that may happen. We may see that. Like I said, over the course of the next couple of weeks, if Beto starts hammering on abortion with this group and Abbott starts hammering more on immigration, that's going to tighten up this race. That is likely what's going to happen. And that's exactly the way both campaigns should be looking at it but even in that environment there is a slight advantage for abbott you have to remember yes these are women of course they're women but they're also republicans that's right and so that's that's the fight and so beto's got the right issues matrix i just don't know if in a conservative state that's as red as texas is that there's enough movement to get him to where he needs to go kansas by the way is as red or redder than Texas, and you saw Republican women say, go pound it, go to hell, right? And that may happen on Election Day. You may, you may, there may be a dramatic overperformance of Republican women telling the GOP to go pound it. That's very, that's a very real possibility. I'm not suggesting it's not. What I'm saying is I haven't seen the evidence from scientific polling to suggest that is the case. I have seen real evidence of that happening on the ground. We saw it, like I mentioned earlier, in special elections. We saw it in Nebraska. We saw it in New York 19. We saw it in Kansas. We're seeing it happen. But, you know, without a roadmap, it's just a gut feeling, and and I'm not in the gut feeling business. Right. Believe me, I'm not shocked. I'm, I'm with you all the way with the science, the data, I've been nerding out on this stuff for years. <laughs> I appreciate it. Oh, my God. I, I appreciate your support, Peggy, and thanks for calling in with such a great question. Okay. Thank you, Mike. You bet. Thank you so much. Renee, another long-time caller. When I say long-time, I'm talking weeks here, right? I've <laughs> <laughs> been around for a while. Yeah. All thanks right, for joining have, us. Sure. I have a, a kind of weird hypothetical question. Okay. I'm sorry. I've got a cold. Anyway, um, you got ten million bucks. Uh-huh. You got to spend it on three can- Democratic candidates who are now down in the polls. 
Uh huh. How much do they get? Okay, great question. I got ten million dollars, and I'm yep. hired to to to. Let me rephrase the question just a little bit, because okay. you probably get, you're going to start hearing me. This is the first time I'm going to use this term all year, but now is the time to start using it. For those of you that follow the Lincoln Project and know my guys, Lucas, uh, my data guy, and Zach, my political guy, I. I I hammered into them the, the, the concept of the efficiency of the spend. And what that means is where are you getting the greatest return on your investment for the dollar that you're spending? And the question you're asking, Renee, you always ask great questions, is here's your amount of money. You apportion it the way you can across three different races. Where are you going to spend them? Okay. But the so the ants currently be down. The Democrat has to currently be down. But, well, what does that mean, though? Like an individual polling or with the polling yeah. averages? Uh, polling averages. Okay. And we're talking about the Senate? Yeah. Um, well, uh, let me... Boy, I don't even know who that might be right now because of where the averages are at. Ryan, I guess, would have to be in there, but I wouldn't spend on Ryan if I if I had ten million dollars. Let me let me well, let me answer it this way. Can I answer like my top three, and then you can kind of push back and say, well, now let's go to to to, to Democrats that are behind. Okay. Okay, let me do that. Okay. So the first place I'm going to go is to Warnock. And I'm going to put five behind Warnock, and I'm going to put three behind Casto, uh, 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 Casto Morte, uh, Masto Cortez. Yes. Sorry, in and in, in Nevada, and then, and then I'm probably going to spend two on Kelly and Arizona. You'll notice those are all defensive positions. And that's because the Democrats should be building a defensive wall right now. And it's why I got a little bit concerned about your question, because those are all offensive questions. In other words, what you were asking is, where can the Democrats go to pick up or to buttress a collapsing candidate? I think that Warnock is salvageable. He's won. He's built a winning coalition before, and I think he's running against a weak candidate. I think he's facing very strong headwinds, but I think Abrams' weaknesses is dragging him a little bit. And so I think he can be saved, and I believe in it so much I would put my money in Georgia. I think Nevada is winnable. I think it can be fixed, but they better get their shit together quick and go in and save Nevada, and then you guarantee you play the insurance policy of Kelly on the back end in Arizona. Who does that leave out? It leaves out Mandela Barnes, right? It leaves Johnson? out Mandela Barnes. It leaves out... Um, uh, Fetterman? Out it leaves out... Well, I think Fetterman's good. I, I'm not worried about Fetterman. I'm not worried about Shapiro either. I don't believe Demings can win, by the way. I don't know if that's going to upset. I, I, I don't know if no, going to upset people. Florida is a much more Republican state than people give it credit for. It's like Ohio. I, I agree with you. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of areas in um, Florida that um, can, can we, that Democrats can improve on over the next few cycles, and we may have a shot at, at Florida in maybe eight or twelve years. But I don't think Florida is winnable right now. 
Um, yeah, I agree with you. I, I'm not a big believer in Florida. And I, I wasn't in 2020. We spent a lot of money in Florida because in the 270 map, you have to. Because if we would have, if we would have won Florida, there's no roadmap for Trump. So we had to go in there. We were the only ones that were moving Republican voters. We did actually move. Uh, Republican was Biden plus nine. It was a significant shift. We got them. The problem was the Democrats couldn't bring bring the Cubans home the way that they had historically, and that's what lost Florida for us. But anyway, that's getting off on a side note. So yeah, I I, I think I think Fetterman's fine. I think that um, Ryan's. You know, tough. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't spend De- money there either. <laughs> yeah, Demings. I don't. I just don't see it. It's possible. It's tighter than it should be, at least on on paper. But Florida, Florida always looks closer, and it usually breaks away. It breaks. It breaks more Republican. You got to look at the trend line. Yeah, um, that's like Georgia. Georgia tends to overperform Democrat, and then yeah, um, North yeah, Carolina yeah. overperforms Republican. Yeah, that's exactly right. No, no, that's yeah, that's exactly right. So I I guess the real question is like, am I a bigger believer in Demings or Barnes? I I would I would put my money on Barnes because you can put that money on the ground and get raw number turnout in a state that's smaller like Wisconsin in a way that you can't. Your dollar goes farther in Wisconsin than it does in Florida. Okay. So I don't know if that's helpful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You bet, Renee. Great to hear from you again. I appreciate it, Mike. Take care. Amy, another question. Let's have it. Well, uh, you know I have my own spreadsheet and asking friends to uh, phone bank for different uh, candidates. But Uh you posted something this week on, uh, so the Michigan Supreme Court, um, is going to allow uh, abortion on the on the ballot this this yeah. year, and yeah. so you said like that. Uh, basically, it's a game changer. So I'm uh, I was going to try to have people um, phone bank Rickmerker and uh, also you know um, Dana Nessel and Jocelyn Benson um, for that, but I'm kind of thinking that they might be safe at this point. But you know, what do you, what are your thoughts? I don't think anything is safe. Um, they're safer, well, right? They're, they're, it's me, a better. It's a better me, position. Let me. Let me. I, I. I think I understand the question. I understand I the question. Limited resources. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand the question, but I, I, I wanted to. I wanted to clarify yeah. what we we're saying here because, you know, people start to say, "Well, Mike said this or Mike said that," and I, and I get that. I understand that. So I, that's why I'm just qualifying a little bit. Yeah. Look, whenever you have a measure on the ballot. Whatever that whatever that measure is, that measure is going to vote more Democrat, the more Democratic position than the Republican position. Every ballot measure can be different. Some are going to be 15 weeks. Some are going to be 19 weeks. Some are going to be parental consent, whatever the hell they're going to be. But you can bet a dollar to a donut that what's going to happen is the voters are going to show up and they're going to vote for the Democratic position by a pretty significant margin. Okay, that's important because it gives Democrats a good frame to be no on X or yes on X and use those coattails as a guide for having lower information voters to vote with them. That's just the way that it works. It's why where Democrats can should put these measures on the ballot all day long, all day long. 
because it's going to define in the people's, the voters' mind where they should be. Now, there's one big caveat to that. A lot of Republican women in Kansas voted for the choice position in that state. But that doesn't mean they're Democrats. Okay? It it means that there's a greater propensity and greater likelihood to guide these voters in that direction. I just said that. I believe that. But it doesn't mean that they will simply by having it on. It just gives you an advantage. And that's what I was trying to say in that tweet is everything now has got to lean more towards the Democratic position. It's an advantage. It's a structural advantage for the Democrats. There's no question about that. Now, how much that actually materializes down ticket, well, I, I don't know. It's going to depend on what the constitution of the rest of the issues matrix is going to be, which is a, which is a political campaign jargony way of saying it depends on what other issues people are focusing on. Mm-hmm. And so it is, it is something you want as a Democrat. It's going to help. How much of a lean? Just a guess. Don't, you know, nobody quote me on this. It's probably a good two to three points. Which is a big number, by the way. Yeah. Which is a big number. If, if you're getting a two to three point structural advantage in any race that's a competitive race, man, you take that. You put that in the bank. That is just huge. And I think that that's what Democrats just found themselves having in Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, and just looking at uh, Whitmer's numbers, she's like uh, looking like double digits over Dixon. So I'm hoping yeah. that you know she's a down ballot that Nestle and uh, Ben's will will Benson will. Yeah, um, you know, I went, um, Dixon. I had I was talking to a reporter. I think it's from Rolling Stone about this race. Um, you know, she uh, the reporter was saying she kind of had this decent answer of pivoting off the abortion question. There's no good answer. The Republicans don't have a good answer because there is no good answer, politically speaking. Yeah. I don't care how, how you feel about the issue. By saying this is a non-issue, women think you know, are more concerned about inflation or blah, 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 blah. Well, that's just bullshit. It, this issue matters. It matters. It's kind of like if Beto were saying, oh, immigration is not really an issue. It doesn't matter. No, it matters. It matters. Yeah. And you better have a good answer for it. Dixon doesn't have a good answer. It's why Whitmer's pulling away. And that's also important, too. That's another advantage. If you've got a candidate who's leading by double digits, there's going to be some coattails. There's not yeah. going to be a whole lot of voters going in and voting for a pro-choice ballot measure, voting for Whitmer, and then voting Republican down ticket. I mean, right. I guess they're out there, but it's like a unicorn. It doesn't really exist. You want it to exist, but it doesn't. It's not there. It's a, fa- it's a fantasy. There's not that many voters that are going to be doing that. And if they are, you probably can't convince them because they've come to that rationale in a way that you know, can't be logically understood. Right, right, right. But, I'm, I'm just going to th- also throw a wrench into the works. What do you think about Lindsey Graham uh, you know, presenting his uh, uh, national ban on abortion and how that will affect the race? I don't think it's going to affect anything, guys. I think it's it's people are there. People are polarized. They're set. They're pissed. It's not making anybody more pissed. It's not moving any vote. The vote. The the shift happened. The earthquake happened. It happened. And 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 that turnout. And there's a question of sustainability. He's not helping with that. I do believe, incidentally, Republicans can recapture this issue in some ways. 
when you look at like California, for example, and some of the, some of the ballot measures that do really kind of overstep. I mean, like I think in California's ballot measure, you can have an abortion up until like I mean, like right up until the end, right? Like that's just that doesn't sit well with people. Yeah. And, and I don't want to get into abortion politics, but I, I I don't think Lindsey Graham made it any worse. I think it's already so bad that it's just a reminder that they fucked up and they don't know what to do with it. That's the issue. McConnell, I don't think, was worried about the issue. He just doesn't want to talk about the issue because there's no win for him. So don't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank All right. You, you bet. Thank you. <laughs> Megan, go ahead. Jump into the queue. Unmute. If there's any other callers, jump in now. We've got a good group here. Um, it looks like we've got a ton of people still. So we're holding on to folks despite the fact that uh, we had major technical difficulties, that we've had babies crying in the background, that you're probably hearing freeway traffic out here in the Napa Valley from me. Um, you guys are hanging in there, and I appreciate that. I can feel the love. Megan, you're going to need to unmute that. Hit that button on the lower right-hand corner to ask your question. You're in the queue, so as soon as you're ready, you can go ahead and ask away. We're ready for you. Jump in other questioners, too. Megan, might be a first-time caller. Might be a first-time mic dropper here up on stage. Megan, you are in the queue. I've never heard a cat voice, but if your icon is of any indication, you're going to sound like a cat. But in the lower right, there's that microphone. I need you to hit that button before I can take any of your questions. Nope. I think we scared the cat away. Um, let me go ahead. Again, we've got a big group here. If anybody does want to jump in with any questions, we can do that. Um, she was, of course, having a little bit of trouble unmuting. She can certainly uh, jump back into the queue, and we'll get those questions answered. But um, otherwise, you know, we've been on the phone a lot, and I, I can't tell you how much I love the fact that uh, you guys are finding some help uh, from this, enough to stick around and get some of those questions answered, even even when um, I'm going off a little bit long in some some weird directions, or when you can't when you can't hear me at all because of a problem with the app. Incidentally, I will I will be um, I will be editing this and cutting out all of that gap. So if you if you if you wanted to take notes or get a review of any of this. I will be publishing it probably in the next couple of hours, and it won't have that massive, massive nightmare gap in there. So go ahead and jump into the queue. We've got Peggy up with another question, and then Andrew. But uh, we'll go back to Peggy and, and get another question answered for her. Hi, Mike. I appreciate it. Yeah. So we, we talked about where Beto needs to lead and, and the strategies of that, and it's it's a little crazy for him. Uh, where does where does Abrams need to leave? What does she she hits this? Wow, great question. Yeah, and again, I, I I we did a whole episode on this. I'm not too sure if you were you were with us early on. I'll repost it too. But I think it was one of the first five or six mic drops I did because I noticed this two months ago. Look, guys, this is not new. I was saying Abrams has got some fundamental problems. The biggest problem I think that Abrams has. And I'm completely open to the idea, although it's very hard to qualify, is the fact that she's a woman. I think that's a problem. Um, I, I think it's a Hillary Clinton type of problem. And I think that there are probably some men uh, and there are some black men who are not comfortable with it. Her numbers are softer with black men than the numbers for Warnock are. 
But I, I also believe that, that Stacey Abrams did herself absolutely no favors during the last election cycle by coming out and questioning the integrity of the election and saying that the election was stolen. I think it really, 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 really hurt her. And I have had candidates try to make that presumption, and you grab them by the collar and you tell them to shut up because you may feel that emotionally in the moment, but that is the wrong time to be making those statements. And when you make those allegations, when you make allegations that an election was stolen, there is no greater violation of the sacred in our country than saying that. Up until Donald Trump, that is what has separated our democracy from 90% of the democracies around the world. Is We don't steal elections in this country. That's now, you, you can make the case that it happened in 2000. You can make the case that it was stolen from Nixon uh, by, by John Kennedy. Both There's a lot of evidence for both of those. But, but in both of those instances, by the way, let me tell you how sacred this is. Is Al Gore chose to lose even though he probably won, then make the country go through that. That's a patriot, by the way. Yes. And, and say what you will about Richard Nixon. The, the, the evidence is there that the Kennedys stole the election in Illinois, in Chicago. But rather than put the country through that, and Nixon said this at the time publicly, we're not going to contest the election. We're going to take the loss. So when a guy like Richard Nixon and a guy like Al Gore can do this, when there's actual factual evidence suggesting that the race was stolen, and then to have Donald Trump come out and lie about it, that's just not it's not it's not part of the American psyche. We don't really respond to that that well. Of course, that's different in, in the MAGA cult now. But I think State I think Stacey Abrams really hurt herself and hurt her favorabilities when she did that. I mean, there's no way to quantify that. But I don't think her, her positives got to the level where they needed to be to put her within striking distance. And I think that that's a big reason. Thanks, Mike. She seems to just hit that ceiling and can't move yeah. past it. Yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I think that's probably – both of those, I think, are factors. I don't know how much. But, but yeah, thanks again for asking, Peggy. Okay. Thank you. You bet. Andrew, you're up on stage. Welcome to Mic Drop. Lower right-hand corner, there's that little mic button with a little slash on it. If you hit that, there you go. Andrew? Can you hear me? I think I can hear you very, very faintly in the background, but something's not connecting with your microphone. Now I, I can barely I can barely hear you. I hear you, I got a couple of hellos in there, but something's not. I can hear background noise, Andrew, but I can't hear your voice. I'm not too sure if others are hearing that same thing. But let's try it again. See if see if you're there. There's the mute button. There's the un, there's the unmute button. Can you go ahead and ask a question? Andrew, you're too faint. I can't hear you. Something's not working with your with your microphone. Are you on a headset? If you're on earphones, maybe the uh, if you're like on 
on earphones. I don't know if that microphone is either turned up or maybe it's not off or not on. But you may want to unplug the earphones and just hold the phone up to your. That might help. Yeah, it's not working. There's mute. Hello? There you go. That's better, I think. Andrew? Hello? Yeah, there you are. Can you hear me? How's that, Mark? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yep. I got you now. Is it better? Yeah, that's perfect. What can I do for you? Okay. Thanks for joining. Um, yeah, no, thank you for having me. Uh, so I'm from down under in Australia, so we're a bit of a different different uh, political system down here. But huh. my question for you is, um, watching from afar, uh, my take is that Beto is running to build a coalition for a 2024 run for the presidency because essentially my opinion is that he's probably going to lose but gracefully lose and do well in a state that doesn't really uh, reward his sort of politics. What do you think about that, Mike? You know, that's... uh, First, let me say, I I love the fact... I I wish Americans paid attention to other countries' politics as much as other countries pay attention to ours because I think globally we'd be in just such a better place. And you hear Ron Stessel and I talk so much on politicology about the coming nature of politics is, is we are really entering a time when, when, when globally we're going to have to network with each other to protect democracies abroad. And, and I want to say that. Thank you, Andrew, for paying attention. Um, and I'm, I'm going to implore everybody who's listening to start, to start kind of focusing a little bit more abroad because that, that time is, is upon us. It's coming very quickly. Now, having said that, look, this is a really interesting theory. My gut ra- reaction is to say that's not the case, and here's why. But then as I thought about it a little bit more, I was like, actually, Andrew might be onto something. So let me, let me tell you why I, I said no. The answer is because Beto really can't afford to lose again politically. If he loses again, then he lost the last time he ran for Senate against Ted Cruz. He sputters and runs out of gas running for president. He now runs for governor again, and he loses. I mean, at a certain point, you lose so often that you, your viability, your argument about viability starts to go down. That's my gut reaction. My, my immediate reaction after that, Andrew, was what the hell else is Beto going to do? <laughs> right? He's got to stay in the limelight. He's got to stay in the news if he's going to look to run for president again. So, so hell, he may be. He, he just might be doing that. I don't know. Um, I don't think it's the best use of time, effort, energy, and a national list. But there is something about Beto O'Rourke that progressives really love. And whatever it is, is the same thing that Gavin Newsom has. And I would argue the same thing like Pete Buttigieg has that they're just there's 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 this there's this commonality of of uh, look, these are white male progressives that demonstrate something to, to the Democratic base. And they are ironically, they are viewed very oftentimes as the best, most capable, competent people to appeal to non-traditional constituencies. Now, you can point to Barack Obama, you can point to Kamala Harris and say, Mike, that's not necessarily the case, but there's a reason why uh, Joe Biden has looked 
you know, in the 2020 primary as the most viable contender. I, so look, I, I, I think it's very possible. I don't think it's, it's not what I would be advising him to do. I would actually put him on a, on a, on a, you know, have him host a cable TV show, have him become a media figure because in the United States, that's really becoming a better path to power than just having experience or elected office, a tradition of elected office. There's a reason why Trump did the, the, as well as he did. It's a sign of an emergent populism, a populism that is not just exclusive to the Republican base. By the way, if you asked me if it would be Trump, DeSantis, or Tucker Carlson in a three-way yeah. primary, who, who would win? Tucker Carlson would crush both of them by double digits. And that's, that, that's the power of media in a populist environment is you can say things and rail on things in a way where the politics of the Senate or the governor's mansion does not allow you that freedom, or at least historically hasn't. All gloves are off now for Republicans. It's only a matter of time before Democrats have to show that. In fact, Gavin Newsom in California is starting to show that, right? He's leaning into these fights, and he's leaning into them for this same reason, and it's really, really smart politics for Gavin. But that's that's I mean, you, you may be right. You may be on to something. I don't know. My my immediate reaction was, no, that's not happening. But j- literally just thinking on it for a couple of seconds, I was like, oh, oh wait a second. What's he going to do if he doesn't run like this is a young man with a huge national list? He can't just sit an election cycle out if he's not in the media spotlight, if he's not in the focus of the attention of the nation. He's got to figure something out. And that also may be why he is not asking for money from the previous call. I don't know if you were here for that, Andrew, but somebody was saying all the messages that they're getting, the emails. That's a good sign. What he's doing is building a national volunteer base. He's not looking for money. He's looking for helpers. Maybe that's another clue. I think think you need to probably rethink your early position because losing to Cruz by three points in Texas is actually a win. No, it's not. No, 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 let me finish. It's it's a win because of the transformation that he gave to the coattails, right? All the the seats, the House seats they flipped in the state, right? The congressional wins that they got because of that. Um, I think you need to factor that into the overall picture. I understand on a headline figure he lost, right? But, you know, he came the closest in how long to winning a Senate seat in a deep red state, right? So I think there's some electability things around him that that are really unique. And if he was on a national stage, um, he could be an Obama-esque kind of motivator. And um, especially winning that independent vote, which I think is obviously where elections are won or lost, right? I, I, I could not disagree more. I think when you lose, you lose. I think that you can lose as a way to set up, but... I don't think anybody believes Beto O'Rourke won by losing. Like I don't, I don't see any evidence of that. I, I hear what you're saying about state houses and races. He lost to Ted Cruz. Okay, I, I don't, I don't think if, if there was an electability argument, why did he do so poorly in the presidential race? Right, there was no constituency for him. I know that there's this progressive need to really love Beto, right? As I jokingly tell my friends, he's the one Latino. He's the one Latino that progressives, that white progressives, really like and trust. <laughs> because of course he's not Latino. He's not Latino, but that's just kind of the way a lot of white progressives think, right? And and they, there's this aura, there's this charisma, but it's not translating to non 
Democratic constituencies, at least not at this point. I'm, uh, the, this, poll, this poll is showing that, right? He's not punching through where he needs to punch through. I don't, I don't fault him. It's a tough, tough state. And it is, it is more competitive than a lot of gubernatorial races in Texas at this time. The question is, is it Beto or is it demographics? And what I'm saying is Texas has been moving to a purple position before Beto O'Rourke ran against Ted Cruz. It's been moving in a Democratic direction for the last six cycles. This is only the third cycle that Beto has been on the statewide ballot. Actually, it's only the second because he was running for president in his second run. So I hear what you're saying, but I, I don't see any evidence of that. And I, I really don't think he's helping his electability argument if he loses a third time. Um, I just don't see it. Right. So he's the right, con- he's the right candidate in the wrong state. That's a good way to put it, actually. In fact, I've, I've tweeted. That's a great way to put it, Andrew. I, I tweeted, you've never seen Gavin Newsom and Beto O'Rourke in the same room because they're the same guy. Like the, the tall guy with good hair that's charismatic and great on the stump and progressives just love him. Right, good looking dude, speaks very well, knows how to counterpunch really well, right? Yep. Beto yep. and Beto and, and Gavin are amazing counterpunchers. Like they have no problem bringing in the fight to Republicans, and Democrats have needed that. So, yes, I think Beto if he were in a blue state, if he were in a California, if he were in a Massachusetts, I think the equation would be a lot different. He's in Texas, and that's just really, really tough. So it's Newsom, so it's Newsom 2024, then. You've answered my question. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. You bet, buddy. Thank you so much for paying attention, and thank you for your call, and, and, and make sure you keep joining us. It's good to get a perspective from outside of our bubble, so thank you for that. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for talking. Right. Appreciate it, Mike. You bet, Andrew. Appreciate it. Okay, guys, I think we're reaching the end here. Don't see any other questions, and it's a shame because we have such a big audience and because you guys were troopers through our technical difficulties. I really, really appreciate you all being here. We're going to try to do this a little bit more as we get closer to the elections. Uh, Feel free to reach out um, and respond on topics that you want to have discussed. My strong sense is what we're going to be doing uh, for these shows is going to be a lot like this. As we get closer, we'll walk through the numbers. We'll walk through the races. I'm going to try to take a deeper dive into the House races, but it's so, so hard because there are new districts. There's no historical trend lines. And because there's not really quality uh, public polling available in most House races that I've got enough confidence in. But, hell, let's take a look at them anyway where we can find them. A lot of you guys live in those districts, so you're going to be able to offer some insight and some expertise beforehand. I'm going to put the show up in just a couple of hours. If you could do me a favor and share it on social media. And if you're not subscribing to the show, it's really important that you subscribe. Hit the mic drop show. Hit subscribe because whenever I go live, even if I do it uh, on an emergency or at the last minute because something significant has happened, it will alert you immediately and you can decide whether or not you want to get in and get a little bit more of a mic drop fix. In the interim, again, if you could share it, I would certainly appreciate it. I love having you. I love this community. If I don't talk to you before on mic drop, we'll see you next Wednesday at 5 or 5.30, maybe even 6 o'clock. We're balancing the times here because I think for the West Coast, it's a little bit more of a challenge for people to get on right after work. But we also don't want our East Coast friends to have to stay up until, uh, you know, a 10.30 hour, which it is right now. 
So thank you again for joining Mic Drop. We'll talk to you next week.